Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the OCP, the original Copycats podcast. How are we all doing? Uh, you can't really respond, can you? So that's a bit of a, bit of a stupid question. So this, this is part two of the Halloween special. Um, hopefully, this should be coming out on the 31st of October, if I've done my my homework and uh, edited this in time. If not, I'm going to look like a right twat. So, yeah. Uh, I hope everyone's had a chance to listen to part one that was released on Friday, the 28th. And I hope you've all enjoyed it. Uh, it, was, it, was quite, it was a very fun episode to record, to be fair. It might not have been the spookiest, but uh, I enjoyed myself and so did Dave. So that's the main thing. However, this is part two, as I've said. And it's a little bit more serious. And, and when I say like a little bit more, I, I mean it's a lot. It's a lot more serious. Uh, because this this is uh, a true crime story. So before we begin, I'm going to put it in here and say that listener discretion is advised on this episode. If you're not a fan of true crime or murder in general... Um, yeah, don't don't listen to this episode. Do yourself a favor, go and make a cup of tea or something, and watch Pingu. It's a lot happier. So I put a poll out on Instagram recently asking you guys what you wanted uh, for the Halloween sort of period, and you said as one of the sort of top answers, you said true crime. So I thought, right, fair enough. I'll, I'll go and do something on that. But I've never really done a deep dive on any true stories like this before. It was it was quite the rabbit hole. Um, I think the closest thing that I can sort of relate to is the story of Janet Chrisman that we did on the first ever Halloween episode back in 2020. I would say that was, that was, that was pretty harrowing to sort of research in the first place, but th- this story is, yeah, it's another level. There are even parts of this story that have made me feel quite, sort of uneasy and uncomfortable so I, I've I've not really gone into quite as much detail in some areas just really to sort of spare myself to be honest if that's all right but I have included links to other people telling the story so if you do want to check them out or get sort of the more nitty-gritty details then I'll include those links in the episode episode description below uh yeah so you can go check them out with that said I I hope that I sort of do this story justice and that uh, you sort of get some sort of enjoyment out of this episode, as dark as it is. But before you go and uh, go and have a listen to this, just do me a little favour and, and go and give us a little five-star review on, on Spotify or, or, or iTunes, wherever you listen, because I scared myself shitless reading these true crime cases, and I feel like I deserve a reward now, so be kind. Yeah, anyway, so um, without further ado... Here is the case of the Richardson family murders. The Richardson family were the epitome of the perfect family. Two loving parents, Mark and Deborah, their daughter Jasmine and their son Jacob. 
they all loved each other very much. That was until one fateful day in 2006, when everything would change, and the Richardsons would cease to be the happy, love-filled family they once were. Mark Richardson was a good-looking and hard-working man who left lasting impressions, according to those who knew him. Before he met his wife-to-be, he had joined a biker club and fell into the wrong crowd, indulging in drugs. Luckily, he had the sense to stop before he was too far gone and sought help. He eventually met Deborah at a gym in Ontario, Canada, and by this time he was completely sober. Deborah, who was described as having a brilliant smile and an infectious personality, instantly gravitated towards Mark, and the two hit it off. She had also been involved in substance abuse and was working hard to remain sober. They both made a vow on that day to change their lives forever. The two were so smitten with each other that not long after they had met, they got married in 1991. Then, just two years later in October, they had their first child, a girl by the name of Jasmine. Jasmine was the reflection of her mother, mainly in her smile. She was an innocent child that exuberated purity and happiness. With long dark hair and pale blue eyes, she loved her mother and father very much and was very well behaved. At the time of her birth, Mark found a job in the oil and gas industry as an instrumentation technician. As a result, they all moved to Okotoks, Alberta. Everything was looking good for the Richardsons, and a few years later in 1998, they had their second child, a boy, Jacob. Jacob was a free-spirited and energetic child who looked up to his sister with love and affection. She adored him too. Despite Mark's new job, the family weren't doing so well financially, and Deborah would often find herself stretching a dollar as far as it would go in order to make sure that her kids always had food on their plates and a roof over their heads. She would take them both to the Anglican church to make sure that they had good Christian values from a young age. In her spare time, she would help other people suffering with substance abuse addictions to overcome their temptations. She spoke and sponsored at Narcotics Anonymous on multiple occasions to try and inspire others. In 2003, Mark was promoted in his job and the company paid for them to move to a three-bedroom house in Medicine Hat. The whole family packed up and moved. Once settled, Deborah opened a holistic therapy studio in the house due to her being a fan of Wicca and holistic medicine. At this time, Jasmine was 10 years of age. In fifth grade in her Catholic school and attending a fine arts program, she was quiet and studious, making friends wherever she went. But, in less than a year's time, her bedroom wallpaper and overall persona would go from pink unicorns and innocence to something far more sinister. By age 11, Jasmine had changed her whole look. Her pale blue eyes were now surrounded by dark black eyeliner. Her lips were adorned with a crimson red lipstick. And her fashion sense could only be described in one way. Gothic. 
However, it wasn't just her physical appearance that changed. Her personality changed too. No longer was Jasmine the well-behaved honor student her friends, teachers, and family once knew. Now she was a rebellious troublemaker, defying her parents and listening to her new favorite metal band, Cradle of Filth. It was around this time that she also started using social media such as MySpace, Nexopia, and VampireFreaks.com. She would lie and claim to be 15 years old using usernames like Runaway Devil and XKillerKittyX. Her persona online was slightly disturbing to say the least, describing herself as a nocturnal Wiccan with an interest in hatchets, serial killers, blood, and human anatomy. Then taking it a step further, listing Jeffrey Dahmer and Marilyn Manson as her heroes. Her bio simply read, Welcome to my tragic end. As time went on, Jasmine started attending rock concerts where she began chatting to older men. Her parents were concerned. They didn't approve of this sort of behaviour and put restrictions in place in order to try and stop it. Meanwhile, at Jasmine's school, her guidance counsellor was accumulating a rather large file on her, documenting that on multiple occasions, Jasmine tried to be sent to foster care. Now, while this may just sound like a rebellious teenager, albeit a big one considering the rapid change, things would get considerably worse when she eventually met Jeremy Steinke, her soon-to-be 23-year-old boyfriend. Jeremy was from a rough background. His parents were raging alcoholics, with his father allegedly abusing Jeremy at a young age. When his father left the family not long after, he was replaced by Jeremy's first stepfather, potentially a chance for positive change in his life, but it was not to be. His stepfather would often abuse him, even going as far as to tie him and his siblings to stools and make them watch the violence. Eventually, his stepfather too was replaced by another violent man who slammed Jeremy's head into a deep freezer and would often abuse his mother. At school, he would be bullied by his peers, many of them calling him Jeremy Stinky. But this wasn't the extent of the immaturity. Jeremy himself was surprisingly immature for his age. At 23, he claimed to be a 300-year-old werewolf that was part of a brotherhood that would one day rise up. He would even often threaten to eat people. He started drinking alcohol and taking drugs early on, which quickly got worse, leading to him being hospitalised at 15 with hypothermia after getting so drunk that he passed out outside in the cold. He would also participate in self-harm, not wanting to experience the life he was living. He dropped out of school in the 10th grade, deciding to move out of his mother's house and try and get a job. Unfortunately, this didn't go to plan, and he was back with his mother before he knew it. At age 22, he decided to completely embrace his gothic side, and changed his whole look. He wore all black and a vial of blood around his neck. This, along with the edginess and ability to drive and buy alcohol, brought him popularity among many underage girls, who described him as sweet, chill, and generous. 
In his younger years, he moved around a lot with his mother and never really felt like he belonged anywhere. That was until he met Jasmine Richardson, the 12-year-old girl from Medicine Hat. In January 2006, Jasmine and her friend Casey were attending an all-age punk show, and Jeremy just so happened to be there too. Casey knew Jeremy anyway, but thought that both he and Jasmine would get on well together. She was right. They spent the entire night talking to each other and exchanged phone numbers, emails and social media usernames. It was from this point that Jasmine claimed that love blossomed. A month later, Jeremy asked Jasmine out via email and she said yes. They had their first date at another all-age show a few days later. Obviously their relationship had to be a secret. Jasmine knew that her parents wouldn't approve of such an age gap, so as a result, they had many private phone calls and emails to each other. Jeremy would often sing her songs that he had written for her, and this had a big effect on Jasmine. She claimed that he was really romantic, and that he told her he loved her all the time. She was falling in love with him more and more by the day. Jasmine would sneak out of the house to go and see him, And this continued until one night, where she was supposed to babysit her little brother, but instead left the house to go to the gas station and left him in the house alone. Jacob called their parents, and she was grounded and stripped of most of her privileges. But this did not include her conversations with Jeremy online. The tone of the messages took an unexpected turn, going from lovey-dovey to extremely dark. One example of the messages sent from Jeremy is as follows. You were a sight for sore eyes, and I miss you more than killing people. Can we get together and kill people together? Jasmine's reply was just as chilling. Killing people sounds like fun, and yes, we shall. I miss you too, a large, large amount that cannot be contained in mere words. I love you. Not long after this, Jeremy gifted Jasmine a vial of his own blood as a token of his love for her. Her parents were becoming more and more concerned with her change in behaviour and looked to her online activity for answers. What they found shocked them to the core. Seeing all the disturbing messages sent between strangers online and other creepy posts on her social media resulted in Jasmine losing her internet privileges for good. Mark and Deborah were so confused by their daughter's words and actions online that they arranged for family counselling, wanting to understand their daughter better. Things had been going well, too. They had been going for a few weeks when they suddenly started to notice a positive change in Jasmine. As a reward for this, she was allowed to go to one of the upcoming rock shows, but on one condition. They were to go with her. She agreed. While at the show, Jasmine managed to escape her parents for a moment, and while they were looking for her, she was making out with Jeremy down an alley. When they finally found her, she was kissing a grown man that they didn't know. This resulted in her being grounded yet again, and her having all of her privileges taken away. But this did nothing to quell her love for Jeremy. 
She started sneaking out more and more to see him, even going as far as to have sex with him. She now pretty much hated her parents with every fibre of her being, feeling that they were stopping her from being with the one that she loved. She would often rant to her friends at school about how unfair her parents were being, but they didn't agree. They thought that Jeremy was a creep, and they didn't like the fact that Jasmine was dating him. She tried every means of keeping in contact with Jeremy whilst being grounded, even turning to library computers to speak to him. On one of these occasions, she sent Jeremy the most infamous email of this case. It's as follows. So I have this plan. It begins with me killing them and ends with me living with you. So are we set? I'm going to try and call you, but I really don't know whether I'll be able to. They're treating me like shit. I hate them so much, but I hope this won't bring us far apart. I hope to talk to you soon. Love you with all of my heart. The next day, Jasmine receives a reply from Jeremy. Well, I love your plan, but we need to get a little bit more creative with, like, details and stuff. I wish they wouldn't treat you that way. Grr, it angers me to hear that. I dislike them very much. Don't worry, I love you too, my sexy beast. I hope to hear from you soon too. Take care, my love. You have the key to my heart, and soon enough, you shall have my heart if I die, because if I give it to you now, I die, and you won't be able to hear how much I love you. And so began their plot to kill her parents. A few days later, Jeremy posted a very morbid-sounding blog post on March the 24th, 2006. My girlfriend's family are totally unfair. They say that they really care. They don't know what's going on. They just assume as their greed continues to consume. She is slowly going insane. She continues to think that I came into her life to help her out and to stop what they keep trying to shout. It's all total bullshit. Their throats I want to slit. They will regret the shit they have done. Especially when I see to it that they are gone. They shall pay for their insolence. Finally, there will be silence. Their blood shall be payment. After this, Jasmine and Jeremy became very vocal in person and online about what they were going to do, telling friends and anyone that would listen about it. Everyone thought they were joking around, not realising that they were in fact deadly serious. Jasmine would beg him every day, telling him that if he loved her, he would do it for her. But according to one of Jeremy's friends, he was having a tough time. In mid-April, Jeremy met with his friend Grant, who listened to what Jeremy had to say. He told him, Jasmine is pretty much going to break up with me if I don't do this soon. I don't think I can do this by myself. I need someone I can trust. You in? Due to the amount of weed that the two were smoking, Grant didn't think anything of Jeremy's question and waved it off. Jeremy replied to another friend online, practically admitting to the murder just before it happened. 
He said, Oh yeah, lol. Hope you enjoy hitting yourself. I, on the other hand, would rather do morbid stuff to others, like Jazz's rents, for example, which I'm going to do this weekend. It would only be one more day until their plan was put into motion. On Saturday, April the 2nd, the Richardsons spent the day in the garden, barbecuing as a family. But Jeremy spent the day getting intoxicated. He bought a 12-pack of beer and some weed. He went back home to his mother's trailer and drank everything, including anything she had lying about, which included a bottle of vodka. At 9pm, he drove over to his friend Jordan's house to plead with him to help him kill the Richardsons, but he was told no. He headed back to his house and watched his favourite film with a friend. The film was Natural Born Killers, which according to Jeremy was the greatest love story of all time. He felt that one part in particular related well to his and Jasmine's story. The part was when the main characters, Mickey and Mallory, decide to kill Mallory's family and then seize her brother. Instead of killing the brother, they let him go. However, Jeremy turned to his friend and said, that is where their story is different, because Jasmine is going to kill her brother. His friend just thought he was being crazy Jeremy as usual and didn't think anything of it. At 3am, Jeremy decides he wants more drugs. He goes to his dealer's house where he buys Powder Courage, a hormone booster which is linked to increased courage and cockiness. At the dealer's house, he consumes the drugs, more vodka and some vampire-branded wine. Then he left for Jasmine's house. He arrived at her house at 4am. He threw a pine cone at her window to signify that he was outside. She let him in through the basement window, but his entry wasn't very subtle. He made a lot of noise due to his intoxicated state, and this alerted Jasmine's mother. She came downstairs under the impression that Jasmine was trying to sneak out of the house again, but instead of that, she was met by a strange man in all black, a face mask, fishnet arm stockings, a black bandana around his neck, and a butcher's knife. He started slashing at Deborah, who tried to defend herself by putting up her arms. Jeremy changed his method of attack and started stabbing her instead, around a dozen or so times. All of Deborah's screams and the general commotion awoke Mark, who also came downstairs to see what was going on. On his way, he grabbed a screwdriver. By the time he got to his wife, she was on the floor, her nightgown covered in blood. Jeremy wasn't ready for Mark, who came rushing at him. Jeremy's account of the scenario is as follows. He came at me real fast. I was scared shitless. I thought I was going down. I went back up and I tripped and fell and he jumped on me and attempted to stab me in the chest. He grabbed my face and shoved his thumbs in my eyes. Jeremy was able to knock Mark's screwdriver aside and stab him a few times with the knife, but Mark wasn't giving up. He had his family to protect. He was trying to choke Jeremy whilst being stabbed repeatedly, but unfortunately, Mark was losing so much blood that Jeremy started to overpower him. Mark fell to the ground and asked Jeremy why he was doing this. And Jeremy's answer 
because you treat your daughter like shit. It's what your daughter wanted. Mark then died from his wounds. Jeremy then met Jasmine in the kitchen, where he told her her parents were dead. She told him how much she loved him before heading upstairs to her brother's room. Jeremy waited for about 30 seconds or so before following her upstairs. Now, quick side note before I carry on, because it's getting pretty heavy at the moment. Um, as I said at the start of the episode, there were certain bits that I didn't really want to go into too much detail, and this is one of them. <laughs> I struggled to read it, to be honest, and I'm not sure I want to kind of read it to you guys, as it's one of, potentially one of the worst things I've ever read. So, um, yeah, I'm not going to do that. So, uh, yeah, as I said at the beginning, there will be links to other people telling this story. And uh, if you want to go and hear all the gruesome details, then click one of those and uh, go and listen. Um, but, yeah, I'm not going to read it. So uh, cheers for your understanding on that. Now that her family were all gone, Jasmine washed off the knife and grabbed her pre-packed bag and mother's purse. Jeremy had left the house for some fresh air, but had run away to his house out of fear. At 5.25am, Jasmine caught a taxi to Jeremy's trailer, where they started disposing of evidence. They backed up their clothes and chucked them in a dumpster behind an apartment building, and they scrubbed the interior of the trailer clean. Once they felt safe, they headed to a party the people at the party noted that both Jeremy and Jasmine were all smiles and laughs. They had stopped caring about who saw them together, as they now openly made out in front of everyone at the party. Jeremy told one of his friends, James, about the deed they had just done, telling him that he gutted her family like fish. James was shocked by how nonchalantly Jeremy said it, as if he was talking about his favourite show on TV. On the same morning, the Richardson's bodies would be discovered by Jacob's best friend, Gareth, who was six at the time. He was excited to go and play with his friend, and didn't expect to find the atrocity that waited for him. They were meant to have a sleepover the night before, but luckily for him, plans changed. Gareth told his mother about what he had seen through the basement window, and she went with him to check things out. After confirming Gareth's story, his mother Sarah calls the police. The police confirm the identity of the bodies at 1pm to be those of the Richardsons. One of the officers was ex-military, and claimed that even though he had seen some horrific stuff in his time, this was by far the worst crime scene he had ever been in. While the police searched for evidence, they found a family photograph where Jasmine was included, Immediately, they feared that she was a victim that had been potentially kidnapped from the scene. They released a statement explaining that they were looking for Jasmine relating to a serious family matter. Not long after, however, new evidence was discovered that pointed in a different direction. A direction that put Jasmine at the top of the suspect list. In her room was some blood smeared on the light switch. The police noted the unlikeliness of an intruder knowing where the light switch was in the house, 
and the more likely scenario of them not opting to use it, meaning that the person responsible was likely familiar with the house's layout. They also noted that this attack was probably done by two individuals, due to the way that the family had been killed. It was unlikely one person would be able to do all of this on their own. The police spoke to the guidance counsellor at Jasmine's school, and she told them that she was a very troubled girl. She offered to look inside Jasmine's locker, where she then found an illustrated stick figure drawing of Jasmine and Jeremy setting the house on fire with the family still inside, while they happily run off to his trailer. After this, her missing person posters quickly changed to wanted posters, and all news channels were broadcasting the story. She became the youngest person in Canada wanted for homicide. Jeremy's friend James and Jordan finally went to the police and told them that Jasmine wasn't working alone. Jasmine and Jeremy were hanging out with their mutual friend Casey, the same girl that had introduced them in the first place. She was unaware of what they had done hours before meeting up with her. They had previously planned to join her on a road trip with two of her other friends to a place called Leda, which was about 168 kilometres away. But the authorities knew that they would run, and had spoken to their friends, which led to them being told about a trip to Leda they had planned. Bulletins for their arrest were issued, and Leda was put on high alert. Constable Aaron Earwert was three steps ahead. He had positioned himself at the largest gas station in Leda, feeling that they would have to stop to refill after their trip. After waiting for two hours, a small pickup truck matching a description pulled in. It had Alberta plates. He watched as they went about their business. Two of the friends got out and went into the gas station. Whilst they were in there, they saw a newspaper with Jasmine's face on the front page. Unaware of the crimes that had been committed, they bought the newspaper and headed back to the car to notify Jasmine. When they told her and Jeremy, they simply chuckled at the news. Jasmine claimed that the picture didn't even look like her, but at no point did either of them deny the accusations. They even came up with a cover story with their friends to help prove that they were innocent. The story was to be as follows. Jeremy was picked up from a friend's house the night before because of him having an argument with said friend whilst they were drunk. This gave him an alibi and an excuse for his injuries. The group of friends then left the gas station and drove to a local high school car park to figure out the next stage of the plan, as did the constable who was right behind them calling for backup. While they were there relaxing, some of them napping in the car, the police ambushed them. They handcuffed the girls, putting them into one car, while Jeremy was placed into another. They were then taken to the station, where Jasmine's friends were let go. Jasmine was held in a holding cell. Her interrogation started on the 25th of April at 10am. An older investigator tried to reason with Jasmine, trying to act like a father figure, but this did not work. She would just sit there and cry. A younger investigator tried something a little more unconventional. Acting like her peer 
instead of someone with authority. This worked almost straight away. She opened up and started telling him everything. She told him about the night in such a way that absolved her of any responsibility. But after the investigator pressed her some more, she cracked and told him the truth. She claimed that she played her part in the murder of her brother, Jacob, but that Jeremy was the one to finish the job. She said that she didn't want him to suffer and that killing him was the best thing for him. He was a sensitive child and wouldn't be strong enough on his own without his parents, which is why Jeremy did it, out of love for her. The investigator showed sympathy towards her and suggested that she should write a letter to her parents, telling them how sorry she was. Jasmine agreed. She wrote the letter. Dear my lovely parental units, I am writing this in response to the events of Sunday morning. A terrible thing happened, something I feel was all my fault. You must know I love you all dearly, and you were in my prayers. I wish peace upon your souls in the Summerland. To my little brother, I apologise for letting you hear what happened, and also for causing you any pain and frightening you so much. To my parents, I hope you know that all of this has happened. I loved you the whole time. I wish I could take everything back. I wish it hadn't happened. I wish that you were here with me right now, because now... I have no one. I pray you can forgive me and Jeremy. I pray you can forgive me and Jeremy too, because he was under the influence of mind-altering substances and did it out of love for me. He is most possibly the kindest person I've ever met. His wish being for my happiness. Through all the fights and hatred exchanged, I still love you. I'm sorry my sarcasm was taken to heart. I never meant to hurt you. I pray you can be at peace somehow. The investigator wanted to see if he could get any further information out of Jasmine, but this time by writing a letter to Jeremy. He told her that he would be able to pass notes between them whilst they were in holding. Jeremy became an open book after this admitting to killing Jasmine's parents, but only because he was high on drugs at the time and freaked out. He also claimed that he tried to convince Jasmine not to go through with it before it happened, but he said he would do anything for her, so he did. Without being prompted, Jeremy said that Jasmine was responsible for Jacob's death, stating that he went upstairs and watched her kill him. Then he paced around the room for a while before going outside for some air. When he was told that Jasmine was pinning all the murders on him, he got frustrated and told them that she did it and that he didn't even want to kill anyone. He said that he was shocked by her reaction, the fact that she didn't even shed a single tear after it was done. Jeremy was then given the chance to write a letter to Jasmine. Jasmine's letter to Jeremy read as follows. Dear my lovely Brisante, Please don't be sorry. I'm the one that should be begging for your forgiveness. If only we ran, yes, but don't obsess on what could have been. In due time, we shall have our castle. I am not whole without you. 
I love you with everything I am. I shall never stop, and promises shall be kept, no matter how desolate it seems. I shall become. Take it one day at a time. It can only get so bad before it gets better. I will be with you in spirit. I hope you're doing all right. However large a task, don't stress out too much. Having your sanity might be helpful more than anything. I wish to be with you and hold you again. But until that time comes, know I love you. Exo, exo. Enjoy in sorrow, my sweet 666. Jeremy responded with this. Dear Cuddle Bunny, Ugh. I'm sure that you are right. What's done is done. You need not ask for my forgiveness. Indeed, in due time, our empire shall be complete. Before you, I was half. Now I am whole. I can't go back to being half. You are the one that I breathe. You are the moon that breaks through the clouds at night. You are all I need. I long to feel your soft skin. I yearn for your kisses, for they get me high. I hope that you stay true to your words. I shall remain strong. Sometimes I have trouble sleeping at night, but I'm sure the thought of you before will get me through the nights. In due time we shall be together once again, but until that day arrives, stay strong, keep hope and have faith. I love you with all of my heart and soul. Never forget that, my love, until we speak again. XO, 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 Jeremy. There was only one other exchange of letters wherein Jeremy proposed to Jasmine and she accepted. They were both charged with three separate counts of murder and they were held in different prisons until their court date. Strangely enough, Jeremy garnered a small amount of support from other underage girls that would stand outside the prison and courthouse, crying for his release. While in prison, Jeremy continued to speak about what he had done, so much so that many of his statements were used against him in court. One of these instances was inside a transport van. An undercover cop was placed in there with him, and Jeremy couldn't help but brag about what he had done. Jasmine was the first to go on trial over a year after their arrest. On the 4th of June 2007, Jasmine pleaded not guilty, owing to the fact that she was under the control of a predator. Unfortunately, police could not use most of her confessionals in court due to the fact that the judge didn't feel that the investigators gave Jasmine the right to a lawyer. However, several witnesses testified that Jasmine had told them she wanted to her parents dead on multiple occasions. Jasmine's defence to these statements was that it was all a joke. The prosecution asked her how she could have prevented this from happening if she really felt this way, but she had nothing. The jury took four hours to decide, but came back with the verdict of guilty on all three counts. Jasmine was sentenced on November the 8th, 2007, to 10 years due to her age. This meant six years of incarceration and four years of probation. The judge also took into account the 18 months she had already served and wanted to make a point of seeking rehabilitation 
over punishment. This resulted in her getting something called rehabilitative custody and supervision. This was a program designed for very young violent offenders with mental health conditions. Jasmine had been previously diagnosed with mental illnesses, but these have not been made public due to her age at the time. The judge ended her trial with these words. Jasmine, you can't undo what you did to your mum, dad or brother. However, what you can do is honour their memory by dedicating your life to become the woman that your parents and brother would be proud of. Jeremy's trial was on November the 14th, 2008. The taped conversation with the undercover cop was used against him. He admitted to killing the Richardsons after taking the stand on December the 2nd. He claimed he freaked out and did it because he was crazy. He said he was only there to get Jasmine and leave. He never intended to hurt anyone, but acted in self-defence. The jury took a whole day to decide on the verdict of guilty on three counts of first-degree murder. He was sentenced on December the 15th and given life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. The Richardson's house was put on the market shortly after and is now popular among those that are interested in the houses of murderers and the murdered. It is unknown if the two of them continue to stay in contact while in prison or after Jasmine's release in 2016. She had reportedly responded well to therapy and showed remorse for her actions. She has since had her record expunged, her name legally changed for her protection, and she went to university and graduated. Jeremy, on the other hand, is still in prison. So that was the story of the Richardson family murders. A, a dark tale that I had never heard of, and in some ways I wish I never had. Um, this case, uh, it, it bothered me quite a bit. And uh, yeah, it's weird. It bothered me a lot. And it's it's not like I'm new to true crime or anything like that. You know, I've listened to a lot. I've listened to a fair share of uh, of horrid, horrid stuff. But this stuck in the forefront of my mind for a few days. And I I think it's to do more so with the, the little brother. I didn't go into detail about that, but the way he was killed and the sort of moments leading up to that was, it was just horrific. And yeah, it, it just, it bothered me. That's the only way I can sort of describe it. It, it just didn't sit right with me at all. And Obviously, obviously, it's not going to, is it? It's a fucking murder, but yeah. Um, I think that uh, one of the sort of main things that bothered me with this as well was the fact that it's to do with family, and family is like the one thing you're supposed to be able to trust, and you clearly couldn't in this. And it came from such innocence as well at the start. That's That's the troubling thing. 
And it was just one thing that sort of set it all off. And Jasmine just went down a, a very, very dark path. And I'm not sure who's to blame on that, whether it would be just influenced through media or whether it was Jeremy that was the sort of catalyst because she was already going through that sort of motion of changing into a goth and being a lot more dark in her personality before she met Jeremy. So I don't know. It's it's a tough one. And the thing that drove me towards this story in the first place was because I saw a headline for it and it made me laugh because it said um, family murdered, and it probably shouldn't have made me laugh, but it said family murdered um, from daughter after she was told to do it by 300-year-old werewolf or something. And I was like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> so I clicked on it and then, yeah, now I have um, PTSD. <laughs> it was pretty rough um but yeah so go and check the links out in the description if you want to hear it in more detail um there are some very good tellings of this story that i have heard so uh yeah go and go and give them a look um but yeah i think actually one of the only things that you can sort of take away from this as a positive is that um jasmine is reportedly a better person now i mean it doesn't excuse any of her actions but I heard somebody say that um, what's the point in rehabilitation if we're not happy even on the smallest amount that it worked? And I thought, well, yeah, that's very true. Otherwise, we're just wasting our time. And I do believe in rehabilitation more than I do punishment. I'm, I think that some people it might not work on, but you don't know until you try. So I'm I'm glad to hear that it's worked in this case um and i'm sure that these these horrific murders will stay with her for the rest of her life which i do believe she deserves that at least and as for jeremy i think uh he definitely needs some help not only this is this is the thing that really bothered me as well at the end was his letters to her the way that she, the way he was writing towards a 12-year-old girl saying that he missed her soft skin and calling her a sexy beast you know me and Josh joke about being a nonce on here all the time but this was actual nonciness <laughs> and yeah it made me yeah I didn't feel good reading that aloud, I've got to be honest. But, yeah, so <laughs> um, I would say I hope you enjoyed this episode, but I'm not sure whether that's possible. Um, I hope you got something out of it. There you go. Let us know if you want more true crime stories in the future, and uh, I'm sure we'll be able to chuck them in where we can. So, yeah, that was the story of the Richardson family murders. It was... Uh, that was a lot. Um, yeah, so join us next time. We'll be doing something else. I'm not sure what yet. Oh, and uh, happy Halloween.
Well, that was a good episode, wasn't it, Josh? That was brilliant. That was really good. I, en- I really, I especially enjoyed how uh, everyone sounded. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're here just to say before you go, could you please spread us around? We'd love it if you could just tell your friends about us and potentially leave us a review where you can. You can rate now on Spotify. Yes, so you can. You can rate us. So if you could rate us five, we'd really appreciate it. But if not, that's fine too. If you do rate us five or anything above, I know you can't, but if you somehow hack the systems, I will personally... Don't. Don't continue. Thank you. That's better. There we go. Well done. So yes, if you <laughs> please feel free to follow us on all the socials. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.